Hello, and welcome to the Good Growing Podcast. I'm Ken Johnson. Um, I'm a horticulture educator with the University of Illinois Extension, and I am based out of Jacksonville. Uh, Chris is off this week, so you are stuck with Katie and I. So we'll welcome Katie onto the show. Hey, Ken. How's it going? Pretty good. And this week, we are going to be joined by Dwayne Friend. He is an energy and environmental stewardship educator. I have also heard them referred to as the Earth, Wind, and Fire people um, with U of I Extension. So welcome to the show, Dwayne. Well, and that's appropriate because in my college days, I was known as Disco Dwayne. So Earth, Wind, and Fire goes along with that really well. (laughs) So... Dwayne, um, you are actually across the hall from me in our office when we are normally in the office. So Dwayne and I know each other fairly well. And Dwayne, so usually when we when we have people on, we ask them kind of their background, how they started with extension, kind of what got them their start, what their kind of quote-unquote expertises are. So you want to kind of share some of the information, how you got your start with extension, how you got here, all that sure. kind of stuff. Well, uh Starting way back in the beginning, I grew up on a small farm in uh, southern Mason County, and um, if anybody is familiar with southern Mason County, really different than a lot of the rest of the state. It's mostly sand. I wasn't used to uh, soil sticking to my shoes until I moved away from home, Uh, but I uh, went to uh, Western Illinois University, got my bachelor's and master's degree there in uh, physical geography. in the areas of natural resources management, uh, a lot of the classes. And uh, actually, my first job once I got out of school was as a resource conservationist with the Soil and Water Conservation District. And that really got me a lot of uh, uh, hands-on background for uh, soil and soil conservation issues. There I got to learn how to do... um, uh, surveying and designing for erosion control practices. I worked with farmers to develop conservation planning uh, documents and those kind of things. And once I got done with that job, I moved on and became a uh, county director for what's now known as the Farm Services Agency. Back then, it had a different name, uh, but that's a, a federal agency that deals with uh, farm uh farm financial issues, uh, price supports, those kind of things, at least at that time it was. And I guess today they still do do a lot of that. And then I got on with uh, University of Illinois Extension in the mid-90s. And um, the areas that I work in uh, is in the area of soil quality, a little bit in the area of water quality, and also work in the areas of weather and climate. So uh, all of those things, again, kind of work off my academic background, what I, what I grew up with in terms of farming, and um, uh, all of those things. So uh, really enjoy the work. Uh, obviously, I've been with Extension for a number of years and uh, enjoy the people I work with. And um, so uh, do a lot in the area on soils. I work with master gardeners uh, for soils training along with master naturalists. And one of the things that I also work with in terms of when I discuss soils with a lot of folks is I also include a section on composting. And um, I I think you have uh, some questions today that are going to relate to some of that. Uh, And then on the water side, one of the areas that I work a lot with are farm ponds. We get lots of questions on farm ponds at this time of year. So uh, uh, hopefully you'll have a few questions in that area as well. 
Yes, we do. So, so going to composting, um, can you just kind of give people kind of just kind of a general overview on kind of the composting process, how they would get started if they sure. wanted to do composting? And rock, composting doesn't have to be rocket science. Uh, although I've got a book in the office that's probably about three inches thick, uh, where if you did want to make it into a, a mathematical uh, endeavor. You could do that if you wanted to get the absolute right mix of things like carbon nitrogen ratio, bulk density, moisture content, all of those things. Nature's pretty good at decomposing things, though. So, um, really, what we're doing with compost is we're managing that decomposition process. So, what we're striving for with composting is we want to get a very high quality form of stable organic matter and that's really the key part of that is stable organic matter you can let a lot of organic material decompose but what you end up having and what you may think is an end product may not be very high quality and if you use it as a soil amendment you may not get the results you want because of that because there still may be a lot of things like uh, ammonia and those kind of things being given off from it and you plant into something like that your plants may end up with a nitrogen deficiency because that material really isn't a stable product yet so really with the composting process what we're looking at is managing that process to try to get a very stable form of organic matter. Now, it's when I say stable, there's lots of different fractions of organic matter in the soil, and we can talk about um, fresh organic matter, and, and you could add that into the soil, and it would it would decompose, but uh, a lot of that is going to go up back into the air, especially if you've worked it into the soil. Uh, you're going to have a lot of that just go back up into the air as carbon dioxide within a couple of months. So with the composting process, when you get that more stable form of organic matter, it's going to last a little bit longer and provide nutrients for plants over a longer period of time. And that may be too long of a, a statement that you wanted me to give, but uh, uh, it's too late to back out now. <laughs> no, that's good. So I know in, in my yard we do some composting. We just basically have a, a pile that we dump stuff on and kind of whatever happens, happens. Um, so, and you're kind of people who are doing this, I know there's a lot of different ways. You've got kind of your static pile like we do. There, there's more active ways. Um, you want to kind of touch on those a little bit yeah and, and like you say a, a static pile lots of people do that and that's fine what you're going to find with that is especially if you if you start a pile and then just let it set for a while maybe a year or so you're going to see the volume of that pile probably decrease by 40 to 50 percent so what's happening is that decomposition is taking pro, uh, taking place uh, you, you may not see a whole lot of change to the outside of that pile because that organic matter out there really isn't decomposing much at all what's happening and where the uh, where the the composting process is taking place in that type of situation is going to be in the interior of that compost pile so really for that type of situation uh, if you do want to have a, a fairly good type of compost uh, to use what you would need to do is just kind of peel off some of that outside layer after, say, after a year or so, and you dig into that, and you'll probably find, uh, you know, some dark, earthy-type material in there, and that's going to be your, your relatively finished compost, and you can use that material, and then what I would suggest is just mix all the material, remaining material together, and, and let it continue to decompose, so you can get some material 
uh, from that fairly easily. And that's not to say that you can't use any of the other, the undecomposed material. Uh, it's just that we caution people when they do that, and especially if they plant directly into material that they've worked into the ground that's relatively fresh material still, uh, you're probably going to have to add some supplemental nitrogen to that because the um, bacteria that's in the soil is going to continue to break that material down, and they're going to pull nitrogen out of the soil to do that while that, that decomposition is taking place. So that's the reason you have to add supplemental nitrogen under those situations. Now for other types of compost uh, processes, I know some folks uh, uh, just kind of look at it and whenever they have time they may end up turning it. That's okay. Um, some folks have the uh, barrel turners. And uh, I've, I've seen and heard quite a bit of um, uh, favorable type of, of end product with that because what you're doing with that is uh, if you turn that fairly frequently what you're doing is you're adding more oxygen into that pile and that's really one of the big limitations when you don't turn a compost pile very frequently you're not getting oxygen in there and that oxygen is needed by those aerobic microorganisms to break down that organic material uh, and so what happens and a lot of times with a static pile or things like that it'll it'll start composting for maybe uh, a couple of weeks, and then once that oxygen level goes down, uh, it, it really slows down. And you may get a little bit of, of airflow, a little bit of oxygen transfer into that pile, but it's going to be very limited. And so the more often you can turn it, the more often you're adding oxygen in, into that type of pile. Uh, one of the other things I'll mention really quick is moisture is another very important aspect of composting. When you pick up some organic material uh, in a compost pile, it should just feel very slightly damp. And if you're able to wring out any water of it, that is way too wet. And you really need to include some type of um, fluff up the material or add some dry material to it to, uh, to get it dried out. Uh, on the other hand, you don't want it too dry either because in some situations, especially if we start getting into this time of year and we start drying out during the summertime, that compost dries out and those microbes need water just as much as they need oxygen. So in some situations, if you're trying to get a good product and trying to get it relatively quickly, that's another thing that you really need to keep tabs on is the moisture content. Um, Sometimes we get questions about uh, if we are turning or if somebody is turning a compost pile, how often they need to turn. And for a backyard compost pile, uh, my suggestion is as often as you're willing to turn it. I know most people are not going to go out every week and turn their compost pile, and that's, that's okay. But the more often you can turn the compost pile, the quicker you're going to get an end product uh, with that, and probably a higher quality end product. If you look at commercial composting operations, the ones that have the huge windrows that are maybe six or seven feet tall when they start out and maybe ten feet wide, when they first mix those materials together, they're out there turning that material maybe every day for a week or so, and then they start backing off from that. Um, now obviously, again, backyard composters are not going to do that, and it's not absolutely necessary, but the more often you can turn it, the more often you can add oxygen into it, the, the quicker you're going to get uh, a, a pretty consistent end product relatively quickly. So, Dwayne, I'm curious. Do you have a compost pile, and what's your method? Do you have just like an open 
open compost pile? Do you have like a pallet compost or a tumbler? Truth in advertising, I currently do not have a compost pile. Um, when I was younger, I did have uh, compost piles at the, the farm that I grew up with. Um, had a lot of leaves, and the, the problem that I had back that time is I didn't have a lot of high nitrogen source material uh, to go along with it. And it was, uh, it was a pile. Or I, I put some snow fence around kind of as a, a holding container, and I would have lots of leaves, uh, but I, I was really short on the high nitrogen material. And I would add some supplemental nitrogen to that compost pile to try to help things along. But um, honestly, in those situations, the, the end product really wasn't all that good. Um, if I would have had more kitchen scraps and those kind of things, that would have really been ideal for for those, especially for those types of, of leaves. Because, um, and one of the things I can mention really, uh, too, if you, if you want to have a good carbon nitrogen ratio, which is what every type of organic material has, it has carbon and it has nitrogen, but what you're looking for is a carbon nitrogen ratio somewhere around 25 to 1. So in other words, about 25 parts uh, carbon to one part nitrogen. That will supply enough nitrogen uh, for the microbes so that they can decompose that material and they don't have to pull it out of the soil to continue to do that process. Um, brown materials, much higher than that. They're typically anywhere for leaves, maybe around 80 to 1. You start getting into wood chips, you may be upwards of five to 600 to one. So really high carbon amounts, very little nitrogen. On the other hand, when you're looking at vegetable scraps, um, fresh grass clippings, uh, those kind of things, they're down around uh, 10 to one, 15 to one. Um, looking at manures, things like uh, horse manure, cow manure, they're around 20 to 25 to one. If you could just get the pure manure, uh, especially like horse manure, uh, you really wouldn't need any other material to blend with it. The problem is with a lot of manures, you have a lot of bedding with it, which raises the carbon ratio up on that. So typically what we suggest is doing a layering method where you start out with about six to eight inches of the brown material, things like leaves, uh, straw, those types of things. On top of that, uh, put a couple of inches of the high nitrogen material, anything from food, food scraps to manure. And then on top of that, you put an inch or two of garden soil or finished compost. That's adding the bacteria into it. You just continue those layerings until you run out of material or until you get the, the pile as big as you want, mix it all together, and you should be good to go. Excellent. So that takes us into some of our questions. Um, and you've kind of touched on, on some of this stuff already. Um, so one question well, we had was Rosemary from Adams County um, asked how often she should be stirring her compost. Yeah, and again, it's it's as often as you're willing to do it. Now, a couple of ways, one of the ways that if you're, if you're really uh, wanting to be a little bit scientific about the, the turning process is uh, you can use temperature kind of as a guide. And they do have compost thermometers out there that you can buy online for probably oh, 50 to $90. You know, if you're, if you're wanting to go that route, they're, they're dial thermometer with about a three or four foot probe on it. You stick that into the um, compost, not all the way down to the very bottom, but about uh, maybe 
couple of inches off the bottom and in the center. That's where the highest temperature is going to be. And typically what you're going to find is once you've blended those materials together, that temperature, especially this time of year, is going to go up and it's going to go up very quickly. It may get up to you know 130 to 140 degrees within 24 hours. After a couple of days though, you're going to see that temperature heading back down. And what's happening is the oxygen level in that compost is going down. Once the temperature gets down to about 100 to 110, that's really a good indication that you're out of oxygen in that pile and it needs to be turned. So using temperature as a guide for turning works really well. Now, if somebody doesn't want to pay a bunch of money for a dial thermometer and you want to go a little bit on the lower tech side, get a piece of uh, metal stake, metal pipe, um, metal rebar, stick that in the compost pile, let it sit there for a day or two, and then on the outside end of it, you know, you can touch that, and if it feels warm to the touch, you know that you've got something going on in that compost pile. You've got some composting taking place. So, you know, you could use that, and once you use that for a while, you would probably get pretty good at figuring out, um, you know, how well that composting is going on in that. Um, <clears throat> The other thing, you know, if you just want to, if you're just wanting to do on a periodic basis, if you could turn it at least during the summertime once a month, that would be, that would be great. Again, the more often you turn it, the more oxygen you're going to add in there, the faster you're going to get something, uh, a good end product with that. Good question. Dwayne, would there be a such thing as turning it too often? Yes, there would be. Um, you know, if you went out and you turned that compost every single day, thinking, oh, I'm going to add oxygen to it every single day, that's not, and, and doing that just for a month or two at a time, that's really too often because it really doesn't allow that, those microbes to do what they need to do. So, um, yeah, turning it too often, and, and I, I think that's probably something that, in most situations, we really don't have to worry about. Uh, yeah, the, and on the commercial side, sometimes uh, you do have some commercial operators that do want to turn it too often, and, and yeah, that they find out they don't uh, get as quick an end product as they'd like simply because they're turning it too often. So, yeah, absolutely, uh, you can turn it uh, too often if you're turning it, especially on a daily basis. All right, then for our next question, uh, we've got Earl from Montgomery County, um, and he's asking about uh, composting weeds that they've sprayed with herbicide. Is that something you should be doing? Okay, now this is a good question, and this is something that we usually talk about this in our Master Gardener classes about. And what we usually say is to err on the side of safety. Uh, uh, those herbicides that are usually sprayed, and again, especially in the summertime, those herbicide, those chemicals, decompose relatively quickly. And if you put that material into a compost pile and it does have good composting going on, one of the things about that heat generation that a compost pile does is it helps degrade a lot of chemicals and pathogens and those types of things. But it's not going to be 100% effective. So typically what we say is if something has been sprayed within a few weeks, don't put that into the compost pile. Uh, just to err on the side of safety. Probably it would be degraded by the time you ended up having finished compost, but why take the chance on it? So uh, we, we talk about 
you know, not using any type of sprayed grass or leaves or anything like that that's been sprayed with herbicides or especially insecticides. Insecticides are a little bit more persistent. Uh, they're going to hang around a little bit longer. So uh, in either case, err on the side of safety and don't use them. Now, just weeds by themselves, if you're pulling them out, they're fantastic for compost because they're green material. They're going to have a lot of nitrogen in there, so uh, that's going to help raise that, uh, that nitrogen content in there and help the compost process along. So anytime you can just pull leaves or pull weeds, I mean, and put that into the compost pile, go ahead and do it. The only other thing to consider is don't put weeds in there that have seed heads on it because even though that heat is going to kill some of those weed seeds, it's not going to get 100% of them. And I've seen compost piles where people have put pumpkins and watermelon uh, remnants in uh, the compost pile, and they're getting really good pumpkins and watermelons out of that compost pile. Uh, so, yeah, just don't don't put the weed seeds in there along with it. Yeah, my compost pile will be one of those. We've got some really nice, really nice potatoes in there too this year. Really? Okay. Well, see, that's a, that's another avenue that you can go with that. Ours, ours is static. We've had it for two years, and I've never turned it down anything with it. It's more of a just kind of a yard waste pile more than anything. Well, and that's that's fine. And you know, one of the things when I was growing up. Um, and I would get ready to go fishing, where I would go to try to get fishing worms, uh, there would be an area out uh, away from the, the house um, where mom would take vegetable scraps and just kind of lay it out in the sand. And uh, there were just tremendous numbers of fishing worms in that, that area where those vegetable scraps have been laid out or, or decomposed and worked into the soil. So that organic matter was there and the earthworms loved that. So that's also where I would find my, my best numbers, biggest numbers of fishing worms is in those areas. And then some other things, you know, you mentioned kind of disease plant material. That's another thing you don't really want to put in compost because, again, more than likely, you're not going to kill all of those pathogens in there, so you may be spreading those that disease with your compost when you use that as well. Right, right. And, you know, especially when you're not turning the compost very often, those heat levels um, may not get up high enough to, to kill those pathogens. Typically, you got to get the compost up to about the 150 to 160 degree range to do that. And really, if it needs to stay up at that level uh, for for you know, some time, a day or two to really kill out pathogens. So uh, it's really hard on a backyard compost pile to do that. Now, having said that, there are situations, and really not so much in a backyard setting, but on a, um, not on a backyard setting, but on a uh, commercial scale, where that temperature can get up too high. If you got that ideal blend of organic material and um, <clears throat> the temperatures can get up to above 160. And the problem with that is, once it starts getting up too high, not only are you killing out the pathogens, you're killing out beneficial microbes, and that's another benefit of good quality compost, is you're also adding a lot of beneficial microbes into the soil that can help um, uh, detract or, or help uh, depopulate disease pathogens, root pathogens that may be in the soil. When you get the, the temperature up past 160, all of that stuff is killed out. You're essentially sterilizing the compost. And if the can temperature continues to climb, once you get up to, I believe it's about 210 degrees, 
that compost will actually start burning. It'll spontaneously combust. Now, that only happens typically with a very large compost pile, uh, you know, some more than likely going to be on a commercial setting where you've got a really high windrow of maybe 10 or, or feet, 10 feet or more in height and maybe 10 or 15 feet wide. Uh, but it can happen, and, and it has happened in the past. For most backyard composting situations, you're probably really not going to have to deal with that too much. Some people may see what they think is smoke coming off of a compost pile, um, you know, maybe especially when it's chilly. It, it may be that it, what they're actually seeing is just um, essentially uh, steam coming off of it. And it. But that's another indicator that you've got good temperatures in that compost. All right, we have another question about what you can add to your compost. So we have somebody who has a dog and a rabbit. They want to know if they can compost the waste from them. Uh, the answer is yes and no. Uh, and actually, no to the dog, yes to the rabbit. Uh, <clears throat> so one of the things I mentioned earlier is uh, you could add manure to a compost. Uh, you can add cow manure. You could add horse manure. You could add rabbit manure, um, you know, alpacas, uh, chicken manure, those kind of things, but you cannot add dog or cats. And the reason for that is they have a different digestive system. They have parasites and, and different types of organisms that you don't want to have in that compost pile. Those other manures that we said were acceptable, those come from herbivores, those animals that only eat plants. So herbivores, the, the manures from those types of critters are okay, but any animal that eats meat, you, you don't want to add that to your compost pile. All right, so that's our compost questions. And you had also mentioned that you are a quote-unquote pond expert. Um, so Katie had a question um, from her unit about ponds. Yeah, so Dwayne, we're starting to see algae build up in ponds, especially ones that are close to agriculture fields. Uh, so we have Barb from Adams County that has algae on her pond. What can she do to get rid of it? That is probably the number one question I get from starting from about March until August is uh, mainly algae questions, but also any type of, of pond weed. And the thing to know with, with ponds, especially farm ponds, is, you know, having that some plants in a pond is just a natural thing. And, and the, typically the rule of thumb, we say, is if you don't have more than 25% of your pond covered in, in pond weeds or algae or whatever, uh, it, it, you know, unless you really are adamant about not having it in there, it, it's okay because as long as that active plant's uh, growth is there. It's actually adding oxygen into your pond, so that's actually helping your fish during this time of year. As summer progresses, the temperature warms up, so does that pond water. As pond temperatures go up, the ability of that water to hold oxygen goes down. And so we start getting into July and August. We typically don't recommend killing out huge swaths of vegetation in the pond because in that case when you kill that material out uh, you're going to, to actually very quickly very drastically decrease the oxygen content in that pond and so when people do that after a couple of days they may start seeing these fish floating up in the water 
and they want to attribute it to the chemicals that they used, when more than likely what happened was when those plants were killed out very quickly, they decomposed very quickly, and uh, you had a very dramatic drop in oxygen levels. So you know, typically after July 1st, we don't recommend doing huge amounts of, of weed control. Now specifically for algae, the, the one thing that works on that, it's relatively cheap and it works very effectively is copper products, copper sulfate products. Uh, you can find these at most farm and home stores. The main thing to know about these are they, they are contact herbicides, so that means you have to get that herbicide in contact with the algae. Once it contacts that algae, it's no longer effective. Uh, so if you have it cover some of the algae, but there's some that's not covered, that stuff that's not covered is not going to be affected by you know, any nearby copper sulfate. Uh, copper sulfate also is, binds very quickly and very strongly to sediment. So if you've got a very muddy pond, uh, you may have to, to slightly raise the amount of material that you apply. Copper sulfate also does not work on other types of pond plants. It's very effective in algae, but it won't work on things like, um, you know, water lilies, um, those types of things. So one of the resources that's out there that's actually very good, it's from one of our um, colleague universities, one of our fellow land-grant universities, Purdue, they've just developed a brand new website on pond and fish management through Purdue Extension. And on that website, you can go in and there's resources on there to help you identify what particular type of pond weed you may have. And then it also supplies information on uh, biological, mechanical, and chemical control uh, with that. So again, if you just did a uh, web search for Purdue Extension uh, Aquatic Plant Management, it should bring that right up. Uh, on the other side, if you're looking for something in fisheries management, uh, Two resources I suggest. One is that Purdue website again on pond management. Um, Illinois Department of Natural Resources also has really good resources on uh, fishing, fish stocking, uh, how to re not restock a pond, but if, if your population numbers are out of whack, how to uh, maybe harvest a certain type, certain number, certain type of fish to try to get your, your numbers back in shape with that. Um, and the other thing I'll mention really quick before I forget it, on the fish side of things, um, you know, there are Illinois Department of Natural Resources fisheries biologists out there uh, that can also help provide some technical information on fish stocking and um, uh, also give you information, you know, if you've got problems with, you don't think you're, you have the right type of fish in there, uh, what you can do to, to try to alleviate that problem. Awesome, and we can put links to the Purdue uh, website and Illinois Department of Natural Resources in the show notes um, okay. if anybody listening Great. would like to access those. Okay. Um, so now we'll, we'll shift gears a little bit, and we've gotten some tomato questions in here, so um, what Katie answer this one. So uh, we've got Jody from McDonough County. Uh, she asks, what's happening to her tomatoes? Um, they have tiny pinholes in the leaves. And she sent a picture in with this, and we can also put a, a link to that in the show notes so you can see what we're actually talking about. 
But Katie, what do you think is going on there? Yeah, so initially when you look at uh, Jody's photo, it kind of looks like maybe she has the start of a disease. Um, but if you look closely, uh, you can kind of see that the holes are completely through, um, which is oftentimes a sign of flea beetles. Uh, so what flea beetles will do is they'll feed on uh, your leaves and leave like a, a shot hole feeding through the leaf. Um, the flea beetles feed as adults, and they oftentimes don't cause too much of an issue, especially as the plants grow um, larger. Some things that you can do to control the flea beetles, uh, you can use sticky traps in your garden to um capture the flea beetles. Uh, you can also create an environment that's not uh, habitable by the flea beetles. So oftentimes they like to overwinter in um, like waterways and brush. Uh, so if you get rid of um, any weeds or anything around your garden, that should prevent them from overwintering around your garden. Typically during the summer as we get later into the season uh, they're not quite as much of an issue because our plants are becoming stronger and so they can uh, just grow through the damage that's being done. Uh, you can also use pesticides but that's probably not necessary, necessary as they don't often cause too much of an issue. And Ken you said that you had some flea beetles in your yard feeding on was it your tomatoes or is it everything? Um, I've seen them a lot on our uh, potato plants. Look like somebody shot them with a shotgun. There's just all these little holes uh-huh. everywhere, and and they're pretty common on on radishes too. So another thing you could use is those floating row covers, especially if it's not a, a fruiting crop where you have to worry about pollinate, pollination. It's like your potatoes and stuff. You could put a, a floating row cover on there and, and try to keep them off that way too. <laughs> Yeah, but I wouldn't suspect that it's going to cause much of an issue, uh, so I don't necessarily think it's something to worry about. Yeah, I I never do anything with them in my yard. Do you typically see them every year? Yeah, this year, I don't know if it's just because they've been kind of slowly building up, but this year I've seen a lot more. Maybe it's just because I'm at home now and, and look at the garden. <laughs> you notice it. So then I also have a question for you, Ken. Um, so Kathy is asking about her tomato plants. They're planted in large plastic whiskey barrels. Um, and it's suggested that we water our tomatoes one to two inches per week. Uh, and she's wondering if this applies to planting in barrels or in containers. And then also her leaves are beginning to curl. And she's not sure if that's due to over or underwatering the tomatoes. Yep, so it's a good thing she's got them in, in those large whiskey barrels. A lot of times when people grow tomatoes, they've got them in containers that are too small. Uh, so typically, um, usually at a minimum, suggest like a five-gallon container, whether that be a you know one of those five-gallon buckets you get from the hardware store. Um, but that's kind of the minimal size, just because tomatoes can get so large. And that, that kind of that one to two inches of moisture a week, that's usually for kind of the in-ground um, plants because they can kind of pull moisture from the surrounding soil. When you have stuff in a pot, those pots are going to dry out um, a lot of times a lot faster. If you're using a, a potting soil or soilless mix, um, those drain real well, so they're not going to probably retain quite as much moisture. So you may actually have to end up 
watering those probably may have to give them more than one to two inches of water per week. A lot's going to depend on the size of the plant too, how quickly they're taking up that water. Um, one way you can, there's a couple ways you can test to see if you have enough moisture in that soil or in that, that soilless mix. Sorry, Dwayne. Um, you can kind of do that finger test, stick your finger in there at the top couple inches feel dry. Um, you can go ahead and water. Um, something like a whiskey barrel is kind of large, but you can also try to kind of pick up that pot and just lift up one of the the sides um, and it feels kind of light easy to pick up probably a good indication you need to water again uh, if it still feels fairly heavy um, then you may be able to wait now sometimes when I've had uh, tomatoes in pots um, I've had to water them almost daily especially when we start getting into the peak of summer and those plants are getting large and really starting to produce fruit sometimes daily if not twice a day depending on the size of the plant um, as far as the leaves curling, um, there is something called uh, physiological leaf roll um, in tomatoes. So a lot of times we start seeing this as we transition from spring to summer, things start getting hotter. A lot of times those leaves will start to curl. Um, a lot of times they'll get kind of thick and leathery um, as well. Um, and, and there's you know, several different reasons um, this can happen. It could be because of too much nitrogen, heat, um, drought stress. Maybe you've done some pruning, you've pruned it too much. Sometimes too much moisture can cause it. So there's a variety of different reasons, but typically kind of that spring to summer transition, um, usually see it a lot more in the vine or indeterminate type plants compared to our bush or determinate types. But a lot of times making sure you have that good, consistent, even moisture, um, not fertilizing too much, not going too crazy with the pruning a lot of times will, will kind of help mitigate some of that. And a lot of times it doesn't really affect the, the productivity too much as long as it's you know, the whole, it doesn't happen to the whole plant. If you just have some here and there, it doesn't really affect productivity. So not really something to worry about too much. Just make sure you're getting um, enough moisture to those plants. And I think those are all the questions we have for this week. Um, and I know, Dwayne, um, the Energy and Environmental Stewardship Team, you guys have been doing um, some everyday environment webinars. I know you've done um, several of those. So I don't know if you want to mention the ones you've done or, or you have coming up. And we can include, again, links to that stuff in the show notes. So if people are interested in those, they can check those out as well. Yeah, it's uh, and if someone wanted to do just a search for everyday environment uh, extension, it would bring up, should bring up the website. We've got a few more weeks left. We're, we've been doing it on a weekly basis since about uh, early April. And we've got two more uh, episodes that we're going to do on a weekly basis. Next week on June 18th at 1 p.m., uh, it's the home energy checkup um, topic. And then the last weekly webinar we're going to do is on 25th, and it's going to be yours truly again, and I'm going to be talking about clouds uh, and just mentioning, uh, showing different types of clouds, what kind of weather to be expected with them, uh, and maybe show a few clouds to folks that they really haven't seen before. After that, we're going to take about a month uh, hiatus, and then we're going to switch to a monthly webinar series. So if people like these types of webinars, uh, we'll be bringing them back later on in the summer on a monthly basis. Right, I think you said you did one this week on um, climate change, right? Uh, it was actually on explaining the greenhouse effect, yes. The greenhouse effect, yep, okay. Uh, the other thing I can mention is uh, if people want to see previous episodes, those are being put up on uh, YouTube, and so they can uh, find those and, and replay those at their convenience. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Dwayne. Um, learned a lot about composting and, and ponds. Well, thank you for, for asking. I appreciate it being on.
Yeah, yeah. I definitely need to uh, go stir my compost pile real quick. <laughs> and one of these days, I'll see you again, hopefully. Yeah, it, it, it may be a, a few weeks yet, but uh, we'll we'll get there. Yes. All right. And then, Katie, as always, thank you for, for coming on and keeping us in line. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> thank you. I think Chris has some competition. Yes. And then, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. Um, and then you wanna, do you want to share your knock-knock joke? Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> this knock-knock joke is for you, Dwayne. Oh, okay. Knock-knock. <laughs> Who's there? Dwayne. Is this going to be Dwayne the bathtub? <laughs> <laughs> Chris and Ken had never heard that joke. <laughs> Are you kidding me? I have heard that for for more years than I care to mention. With a name I'm like sorry, Dwayne. I ruined the joke. <laughs> hey, on that's purpose. okay. <laughs> that's okay. Uh, so it's yes, Dwayne the bathtub. I'm drowning. <laughs> uh, all right. How does Chris usually end it? I think that's a pretty good end right there. <laughs> <laughs> well, that wraps up this week's edition of the Good Growing Podcast. Make sure you join us next week and keep on growing.